0: Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a brand new podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker and joining me as always is Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1991 movie Black Robe. So we'll do a quick little summary before we dive into it. So this takes place in, I believe, the 1630s.
1: Yeah, approximately yes.
0: And this is French colony out in Quebec, and they're interacting with the Algonquin tribes. And the priest there is sent on a mission to find a missionary in here, near Huron, right. Huron it's tribe.
1: About a fifteen hundred mile trip.
0: Along the way, he interacts with the tribe. They don't trust him. They think he's a demon. And he also has a companion along the way. Daniel and he falls in love with one of the women under the tribe, and he starts. He you can see he sort of sympathizes with them more than Black Robe does, and it's interesting. Uh, it, this is an underlooked part, I think, of the colonialization in Americas. You don't see it like in the Quebec, like when I think of er, like movies about colonialization, like Terrence Malick's *The New World*, which is all about uh, Jamestown and Pocahontas. You don't really go see up go north with the Canadian tribes, with the Canadian area.
1: Yeah, that's true. And I know from what I've read in, uh, not necessarily film, but in literature, uh, there's a great book that comes to mind is uh, Nathaniel Philbrick's uh, Mayflower, which tells the story of the uh, Puritans who came over and settled in, uh, Plymouth, and then it, it, it covers about 70 years, and it also covers this thing called the King Philip War, which is actually a, a war uh, uh, of the uh, uh, pilgrims and allied Indians with, uh, another, with an Indian uh, group. A very interesting story, and it tells the story uh, down there, so to speak, in present-day you know, Massachusetts. But, yeah, there aren't a lot of stories that are set in the Canadian region. With those particular tribes, you know we have the uh, uh, Algonquins, and uh, a little later in the film, we see that uh, um, uh, we, we see the party basically uh, ambushed and taken prisoner by the Iroquois Mohawks, in particular, I yes. believe, mm-hmm. um, and they are the enemies of the Algonquins, um, and you know so y- you have like you have in the other story that I mentioned. Um, kind of a, is a uh, the milieu in which the story is taking. It's 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 a combination of power politics between the Indian tribes, and combined with the uh, similar machinations between the French and the British and the Dutch. And it's interesting because you, you see the you see the European powers aligning with various. Indian powers or Native American powers and uh, uh, spheres of influence, war, uh, and uh, that's what I I like about this film. It's Mm -hmm. gritty. It's realistic. It doesn't paint either side in an idealistic light. And uh, you know, as far as I know, not being a historian, but as far as I know, it's it's historically pretty dead on, you know,
0: as novels go. And it's interesting you talk about how bleak it is. I remember Roger Ebert wrote a review on his website, and he gave it like a, I think his rating was like 2.5 out of 4, which means he kind of liked it but wasn't super high on it. But I think one of the reasons why he didn't enjoy it, because especially with that ending, he just felt it was so bleak and so depressing and almost, I would say, anticlimactic. I don't want to get into spoilers yet, but... Feel free to go ahead, to yeah, go ahead and say uh, what happens. Oh, the, the postscript is he gets to the mission, and then you know, he agrees to baptize them and save them. I just want to
1: fill in a few details here. Uh, this is also something that is, uh, I think, emphasized very strongly in that book by Philbrick that I just mentioned. Is um, The Europeans brought over diseases that devastated yeah. the populations. Yeah. And by the time this story occurs and by the time that Philbrick story occurs, the local populations have been heavily devastated. So it's kind of in the background of this trip that they're making, that the Uron. this is the, the uh, tribe or that missionary is with the Uron, right? He's taking yes. his 1,500-mile trip to get to them. Um, we kind of know that the Uron have been hit heavily by plague, basically, uh, disease. Um, brought on by, uh, brought in uh, ultimately by the Europeans. Um, And at the end of that story, he does get there. Uh, A lot of them are dead. They suspect that the missionary is somehow or another the cause of it by some kind of demonic power, right? Yet he takes on that missionary role. And the Indians have this idea from the deceased missionary, right, that... uh, They'll be able to be healed by some kind of water sorcery, which we know. In, and coming from Christian baptism. background, it's a baptism. But they see it as a possible kind of magical cure. So, the dilemma that Father LaForgue has to uh, deal with is whether to be completely honest with them and tell them, you know, that's not what baptism is. It's this is not medicine. <laughs> it is not magic. Um, or, or should he? go ahead and go uh, play along with that belief uh in the hopes that baptizing them um with that sort of a less than honest approach would still save their souls right yeah because he he really he is a a totally sincere uh uh, man he think he does want to save their
0: souls yeah and that's and like we were talking about how it's unique, and we, this is an underlooked part of the colonialization. I still think it, it deals with that problem over the history, just with any um, interactions you've had with Native Americans. it's We have to convert them to Christianity or Catholicism. We need to save their souls. If not, they're going to burn in hell. But the thing is, they have their own religion that they've been following for how, wh- however long. They have their own set of beliefs, and it's sort of, well, all that stuff you've been following now is wrong. This is our right way. You need to give up that way of life and follow our way, or you're going to burn in hell. And that, that's still always just been that problem, they, which is, I think, about the communications breakdown in this movie is... Mm-hmm. There's just they don't understand that way, like there's one interesting scene when they ask about heaven, and they say, You know, will we have women there? Will we have this? Will we have tobacco and he says, No, you'll be happy enough just being with God, and they sort of scoff at that yeah. and they don't you know it's just because they they're probably, they probably don't want that religion, but we're still we still want to have them because we feel like they have to be saved. These men are savages, we need to save them yeah, and that's what I like about this film is it It shows the, uh,
1: uh, if not scorn, at least the kind of bemused uh, attitude that that Native Americans have toward the the European, the Christian belief system very well. Uh, They think it's uh, very odd and uh, unnecessarily unworldly, right? Where uh, they see... Uh, their spiritual powers and spiritual values as uh, ingrained in the world. You know, they see it in the trees. They see it in the animals. They get regular contact with it through uh, dreams, Mm -hmm. right? So they look at what the French are offering, and they just kind of laugh. They say, why would we want that? Don't you understand? And and on the other side, so they, in a way, think the French are just kind of weird unworldly savages themselves yeah, right yeah. and then uh, the French look at the, uh, the the Algonquins and the Iroquois and uh, you're on belief systems as being uh, uh, too worldly but also bizarre right so it, it's a very interesting uh, uh, illustration of a concept that this brought it brought it to mind for me is from William James uh, uh Uh, American philosopher, uh, late 1800s, wrote a a great deal of uh, 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 reflections on religious belief. And and he says, you know, it'll depend on what you will take as being a plausible religious system, one that you should take seriously as a possibility, is very much a uh, product of your upbringing your environment right and if your environment is very much unlike the environment that kind of gave rise to some particular religious system then the chances are that you will take it very seriously at all as not being something uh, on the level of a fairy tale or a Santa Claus I hate to break anybody's uh, balloon there <laughs> but um, um, and he makes that point he says he puts it he has a term for this. Uh, For us in the West, who've grown up in the Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, Christianity to some extent, uh, maybe Islam or something like that, those religions have features with which we're familiar that make them what he calls live options for us. If someone were to present an argument that uh, you need to seriously consider this because if you don't, perhaps God will throw you in hell, Uh, we would kind of take sit back for a while and say, you know what, you're right, I need to think about this. This is an argument Blaise Pascal came up with. It's called Pascal's Wager. And James makes a good point. Pascal's Wager, at least applied to a, a monotheistic kind of uh, religion like Christianity is with the traditional God uh, that we're used to, um, is a live option for us, yes. But if you were to apply that argument uh, Pascal's wager type argument to somebody from a, a very different background um, in terms of uh, the spiritual beliefs they might have, like the Native Americans. They'll just kind of look and go, okay. You know, yeah. <laughs> they won't take it seriously at all. And vice versa. We would not take them seriously if they pre- presented some kind of a Pascal's wager argument for us. You need to seriously consider you know, animism. Mm-hmm. you know uh we would just kind of shrug our shoulders and say no not really
0: yeah and watching this film and even kind of this breakdown even talking about how some people find this ridiculous it reminds me i know that you haven't seen this film but martin scorsese's 2016 film silence and that is also about jesuit missionaries but this and I think it's around the same time period the 1600s but this time they're going to japan to spread christianity and and it's still this they try to reach out to the, you know, certain Japanese villages, but the Japanese are just not quite understanding the pra- their practice of Christianity. I know one of the things when they're talking about Jesus being the son of God, um, they realize that they're assuming that it is the son, that the actual son. And it's, and it's it still goes down that you're not fully grasping it. And they probably, and some people were at, you know, questioning um, one of the missionaries about you know what about this element of Christianity? What about this element? And they're not you know they're not they're like that doesn't make any sense. I don't you know I don't get that. And they're still not quite grasping or they're not liking some of the certain elements of the religion.
1: Yeah, um, not quite comprehending it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I I'd like to see that. I have not seen that film, but um, you you get this impression from what I've heard about it, and also. Uh, this film is you just have certain aspects of the other culture's belief experience you can't wrap your mind around because there's almost nothing in your own background or experiences that would lend it any kind of plausibility. Um, Okay, I'm going to throw you an example. When I was thinking along those lines after watching this film. There is a famous thought experiment by, we're going way back in time here, uh, the philosopher Plato. Plato's uh, allegory of the cave. And if you know something about that, um, he has us imagine that there's this uh, group of people that are in an underground cave. They're tied up and constrained in one position so they can't move their heads and they're looking straight ahead and there's this wall on the cave. Well, behind them is a kind of a parapet and a fire behind that and there are people there that have these cut out puppets of real life objects like people cows tables whatever and they parade those in front of the fire that projects images onto the wall that these prisoners are facing and this is all they have ever seen in their lives right does that make sense yes so a cow is a two-dimensional just simply dark object for them for instance well somehow or another one of them gets free and he go he finds his way up the passage to the real world and he sees real cows they're in 3d uh, they have more colors than just black <laughs> right and there are a myriad of other colors out there in that 3D world. And he tries, he goes back into the cave and he tries to explain to those other denizens that are still tied up in the cave the nature of that other reality. And because they do not have a sufficient shared experience, he's quite literally unable to uh, adequately describe it to them. And you get that feeling sometimes in this film with the uh, Algonquins as they're trying to understand the French. Very interesting. Uh, it's, an, it's an analogy, sure enough. Uh, mm-hmm. But it is one, I think, that I th- is well
0: taken when it comes to interacting with other cultures. Yeah, you even see that in the beginning of the film when they're all gathered around that room looking at the uh, mechanical clock and then when it rings at a certain time, they think it's actually speaking and like they even talk amongst themselves like this is, this is what drives the colonies, they do what this person says, the clock. Yes. Not knowing what it is because they've never had something like that. They don't have a. Cl- they've never had a clock in their culture, knowing that oh, it rings when, you, when it hits a certain time frame or it tells you what time it is.
1: Yeah, in their experience, the only things that are uh, that have the feature of moving on their own are living things. So they're they're not even able to comprehend that this thing is a mechanism. And because they can't, they 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 draw a reasonable inference that it is a living thing, it makes noises. These people seem to do things when it makes certain noises. So it must be an intelligent being and it must be yeah. what uh is kind of running their show because boy they they They, they, they revolve make, their life around it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't know what that tells us about scheduling and maybe we just need to free up more free time and quit worrying about clocks. That might be a good message, but definitely there. The conceptual apparatus is not there for them to understand that. So they as best they can, uh, interpret it given their background.
0: And even going back to that concept about time being revolved around time, they even um Black Robe is wondering like, well, they don't have anything stored. They just, you know, live in the now. They don't like Prepare, plan, think of the future, and once again, something like scheduling and planning and thinking ahead—that's probably something they've never had to. You know, they don't think about. They just work on today. Tomorrow, we'll work on tomorrow. When tomorrow, yeah, and that—that's
1: a—that's an artifact of the area in which they live. It—it um, it would be very hard, and the colonists knew this from experience. It would be very hard to do very much agriculture there and uh, 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 live a settled existence. So most of the Native Americans in the area, not all of them, but most of them lived a nomadic kind of a life. Uh, And it it works fine. Your seasons uh, tend to be harsh, right? Although we do see a couple of fortresses, right? The Iroquois have a fortress, and when he finally gets to the Huron, they have a fortress. But those things uh, were very hard-fought, hard-won in wrestling them out of the primeval forests, so to speak. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we can see that they have not had a great deal of luck with the settlements because they were kind of hotbeds for disease. So, you know, if, if the Europeans ha- hadn't stayed, uh, this suggests to us, you know, that they would have, I won't even use the word revert. I don't think it's, it sounds like it's regression but they would have reverted, I'll use it anyway, uh, they would have reverted uh, to, to a hunter-gather more of a
0: hunter-gatherer lifestyle and been perfectly rational in doing so because it fits the environment. One of the things you talked about, um, another thing that's sort of different, is when we see them getting captured by the Iroquois, we see the brutal, almost casual violence. Where we see them immediately run the gauntlet. We see one of the ch- young children get killed in front of everybody. They cut off the finger of Black rope and you can see that in one of the flashbacks that's happened before one of the priests had his face burned and one of his ears taken off. yeah and he's shocked and appalled by it. But then when he talks to Chomina, he's j- it's it comes you know it comes with the, it comes with the territories like he, he said something I believe, along the lines of if we captured them, what we would do to them wouldn't be that much different.
1: Yes. Um, I think this brings us to another uh, connection with a Western philosophical concept. Because they live in a hunter-gatherer kind of a situation, um, they have to roam over large territories. And each tribe uh, does have a more or less delineated territory. They wouldn't say they have borders, but they still have Certain spheres of influence they want to protect, and they have to, uh, in order to uh, ensure enough um, uh, food, water, hunting grounds, and so forth. So what you have is a a, a collection of more or less equal uh, tribes, more or less equal in size and power. So they they exist in what's this this state of nature, which is this kind of uneasy war of all against all. And they have to think strategically about how best to maintain their territory. And they've all come down to the conclusion that, well, in order to do that, you have to make it so terrifying and so horrific to infringe on the other on, on your territory that people will think twice about it or just move around your territory yeah. and maybe try another one. So they do these things to each other and had been doing things to, like this to each other. Um, And, you know, there is this uh, balance of power there. Um, Very historically accurate picture, I think. Yeah. And it's also something that comes up up very strongly in that Nathaniel Philbrick
0: book, too, um, with the warring tribes there. And I think that gets to um, kind of the subject, I think, of betrayal of Native Americans in movies. Because I think you kind of have like three stages Early on, you just had them as, you know, you know the Red Savage. They're always... They're out there to do terrible things. That's what they do. They're always a threat to white civilization. You mainly see this in Westerns. So you think of the first stagecoach when they're about to attack the stage and one of the Southern generals is about to put a gun to a woman's head when it looks like the Indians are about to win to, to basically save her from horrific violence being done to her. Yeah. And then I think as the 60s and 70s came on you saw this second wave and that portrayed them i think think of that like famous uh, commercial where the tears being shed as garbage is being thrown in the street where it's they were just peace loving you know they loved nature they loved the environment they didn't want to harm anybody and that's also not true i think it's a combination of the same like to deny that they were violent that they were They fought, they were warlike in nature, would be denying their almost their identity. A lot of tribes were like that. But then again, it wasn't necessarily like it was in those old westerns when they were just constantly out to take and plunder whatever they wanted. It's somewhere in between. Yeah. I think that's always what you have to look at when you portray Native Americans on screen.
1: Yeah. And I I think that's very, very perceptive. Um, You have, you have, uh, uh, kind of a thesis and an antithesis, and then kind of a synthesis. And what I like about this film and uh, other more recent ones is, is, they actually go to go to great lengths to draw parallels between the behavior of the European powers and the behavior of the uh, uh, Indian tribes, and say, hey, you look. When it comes down to it, there's a lot of commonality here, especially. In Europe, before the Peace of Westphalia, there there was a war of all against all. There was a pretty brutal conflict, right? And uh, um, that's why I, that's why the colonial period is so intriguing because you you have this connecting up of uh, uh, two continents, right? And alliances between tribes and particular European powers and that interplay. Um, it shows a commonality it it shows uh, uh kind of underneath the significant cultural differences and the significant um, conceptual differences that may occur there are still common elements uh, we all have to eat we all have to have secure territory and uh, uh, I think they do a good job of this is a, a, a does a good job of building to get to a concept we talked about in an earlier film empathy and understanding between cultures
0: yes so we're getting close to the end of our notes here is before we sign off is there anything else you want to bring up um if i have one criticism of this movie i the there was quite a number of flashbacks to black robe's life before he went on And outside of maybe that first one with the priest, which shows the scars he's had, I didn't really feel a lot of the other ones were quite necessary.
1: Yeah, I I tend to agree. I don't even know if you needed them. I'm thinking maybe they could have have incorporated the scene with uh, this priest that had been horribly disfigured by the Mohawks, I think it was. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, They could have just incorporated that into the narrative. Right, instead of having the flashback I think maybe as a beginning part of the story before he departs France yeah. um, they could have done that and the other ones and there was there were a couple of flashbacks with a romance
0: yeah I or remember he's, right he's like he's it almost felt like he his mom I believe was like pushing him like you know she's you know wealthy and comes from a good family and I, it seems like he pursued the priesthood because he just wanted to get away from that i don't know i
1: don't know it it, it was kind of a a weird appendage to the story they could have done Mm -hmm. without it yeah i think and it might have made it a little tighter of a film although it's only it's only an hour hour 36 tight already yeah
0: so okay thank you for listening to this week's episode of philosophy at the movies you can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, where each episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found at thesoundofcinema.automatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Sing so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies.